this is a very very special uh power shop because there's just so many jewels that we can really talk about and really immerse ourselves about but <clears throat> the interesting thing about Toldot that I want to start off today is the understanding of genealogy genealogy is a very very big topic of talk when we talk about especially in the messianic movement um and I believe that a lot of the words of Yeshua are going to probably hopefully make more sense as we go through this parashah Toldot, because through Toldot, we get to understand now truly, I believe, uh, at more, in more detail, our position in the kingdom of Hashem. Amen? So look, I want to, first of all, we're going to begin today's study with Matthew 3.9, the understanding of Matthew 3.9. And it says... And do, this is Yeshua speaking. It says, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Who was Yeshua addressing here in Matthew chapter 3, 9? He was addressing at the Pharisees, exactly. Uh, those who were calling, not just Pharisees, but <clears throat> many within the group who were actually of the land and, you know, the bloodline and whatnot. And they, and they were relying, of course, in that. So he goes on to proceed to tell him, do not think and say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, why did he say that? It's the question. Why did he say that God is able to raise up children from these stones, these Eben, essentially? Because of the understanding of Toldot, hopefully today we understand why he said that. So look, <coughs> the parasha opens up. Genesis 25, 19. It says, this is the genealogy of Isaac. Now, can we all agree that up to this point, actually, even prior to that, it says that where everybody understood, and even the read up to this point, that Isaac was Abraham's son. There's no doubt about that. that I mean, this is not something that's in dispute at this point. So the rabbis asked, why is it that the parasha says that Abraham begot Isaac. There's a difference between begotting, begotting Isaac and giving birth to Isaac, so to speak. Although Abraham didn't technically give birth to him, right? <laughs> but, but you get my point. You know, it, it, what is the difference? And there is a subtle difference in here that the Torah is trying to share with us. And that's why it says this genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Okay, so we understand that he's a son. So why does it now automatically go into Abraham begot Isaac? This is the part that we need to understand. So in Hebrew, it opens up by saying, in the language, and this is what's really interesting, ve'ele toldot Isaac. Okay? The word in there is toldot, which is the title of this parsha today. And it's from the Hebrew word tolda, which means like a, a, a descent, a family, a history generation that kind of makes sense right we're very familiar with all these topics all these uh terminologies now the uh, the parent word for this is actually yalad which means to bear to bring forth to beget to be born also so it carries all this kind of understanding but in reality when we're talking about you know he begot or you know god's only begotten son what does it mean of god's only begotten son the Sforno, or rather the uh, Hazal, is going to share, IBN Ezra in this case, is going to share some insight on this. And I really, really love the way he wrote in here. 
IBN Ezra shares this. It says the meaning of the word holit, which is begot, is bringing up in race, essentially. So you can give birth to a son, but never raise him. Make sense? Or you can give birth to a son and actually raise him. So the understanding of this is, as the expression he says of you'll do, which is were raised upon Joseph's knees. When they says that they were raised in Joseph's knees, which we're going to talk about that, you know, later in the parsha. Even as it says, and he sent them away from Isaac, his son. That's what IBNS was sharing all these different topics in here. When Abraham sent all the rest of the sons and he gave him gifts, essentially. But he kept Isaac, right? Because he raised Isaac, but he didn't raise the other ones. So the other ones were not begotten, but Isaac was begotten. You see? Now, there's something about begotten, though, that's more than, uh, again, putting, again, our Semitic understanding. When we're talking about raising, we're talking about values now. now this is where it connects with the Torah. The Sforno asks this. <coughs> The Swarna gives a simple answer to the question, why does the Torah have to state Abraham begot Isaac? Since we're already told that Isaac was the son of Abraham, he says in here. This is meant to tell us that only Isaac is considered to be true and worthy seed of Abraham. That's the key right there. See, this is why Yeshua was the begotten of God. This is why also... When the Jews accuse them of saying, you are, you, you, you consider, you're making yourself to be God, or you're calling yourself the son of God, what did he reply and said? And it is written, you are gods. This is going to kind of make sense now. Because, you see, technically, we all are sons of gods. And by the way, the psalm says that. That's what Yeshua quoted to the Jews. You are our gods. When he said, we well, you know that what the scripture says is true. And God called them gods. The one to who this message was given, he says. In other words, the ones that follow obedience to the Father, you will be considered as a son because you are a begotten. You're the one following the deeds. See, so it has nothing to do with giving birth, so to speak. See, this is what the paganism comes in. You know, uh, of the father God, son God, and all these other different things. has nothing to do with that. It has to do with being worthy and true of the seed of Abraham. Meaning, akin for, and Isaac shall seed be called to you. 21.12. Genesis 21.12. And the example that he says in here, Isaac and not Ishmael. Now, can we agree that Ishmael was Abraham's son too? Okay, but Ishmael was not Abraham's begotten son. There's a difference. See, Isaac was the begotten one. So hopefully it makes a little bit more sense when we start reading in the New Testament now, you know, the only begotten son. Okay, this has nothing to do with giving birth. This has to do with following the obedience, leading by example, and coming in the lineage of the patriarchs also, by the way. We're going to talk a little bit about it in a minute. This is why in the gospel in Matthew, it opens up with the genealogy of Yeshua. And if you notice the genealogy of Yeshua starts with Abraham. Interesting. And, you know, it goes down the lineage all the way up to 
Yeshua, right? But if you notice through that lineage, not all of them are bloodline. Interesting enough. Because, again, this has nothing to do necessarily with the bloodline. It has to do with the begotten, the ones who are worthy, the seed that will continue, which was brought forth, the Messiah. Amen. So, <coughs> it says in here, is uh, Isaac and not Ishmo, even though he is also called a son of Abraham. Midrash Tanhuma, love what they add in here. And the Midrash Tanhuma says this. In reference to this, the verse states, the father of a righteous son will be cheerful. One who begets a wise child will rejoice in him. They're quoting Proverbs 23, 24 in connection with this parasha, the opening of this parasha. Now, why did they quote it, Proverbs 23, 24? Because it says the father of a righteous son will be cheerful. One who begets. Remember, we're talking about begot, begetting a child is the one who's raised in the values of the father. So to whom was Solomon referring to? Now, this is amazing. Look what Tahuma says. Now, we are <coughs> you guys remember that we've been talking up to this point that Isaac is a prophetic picture of the Messiah, right? You know, the, he went into the altar and he gave his own life and everything. This is what the sages are saying about Isaac because they understood him as being prophetic of picture of the Messiah. And look what it says in here in the Midrash San Juma. It says that the father of a righteous, he's quoting Proverbs 23, 24, right? It's cheerful. One who begets a wise child will rejoice in him. This is talking about Messiah Yeshua. We're going to see why. Look what it says. To whom was Solomon referring? He said this only in regard to Isaac. So Midrash Tachuma is saying that the, uh, Solomon, Proverbs 23, 24, Solomon is addressing the son in there is actually Isaac. Now we understand that Isaac and even the sages understood that Isaac is a prophetic picture of the Messiah. So look what it says. He said, for this is only in regard to Isaac for at the time of his birth, meaning Isaac, everything that had been created, it says, rejoiced. In other words, they're saying that when Isaac came into the world everything in the world rejoiced such as the sun rejoiced the moon the stars and the mazalot also which is the constellations now listen to what they say why did they rejoice why did the sun rejoice the moon rejoice and all these things rejoiced because had it not been isaac the world would not have been able to exist they say if it wasn't for Isaac, the world would have never came to existence. Put your New Testament scripture uh, on, folks, because it says that everything that was created was created for his sake. And all things came to be because of him. And he is the first fruits. <laughs> so it's saying that in Isaac, this is the reason why the world was existence. Because remember, when we're talking about Isaac, you got to understand the way they're thinking when we're talking about Isaac, Isaac is the one that went to the altar to lay down his life. And through that, there's redemption for the entire creation. This is why it says that everything was created. What they're saying in here, they're not saying Messiah Yeshua. Because when this was written, you know, it's way before that. But it's saying what? They, they understood Isaac as the prophetic picture of the Messiah. So it says in here, because had it not been for Isaac, the world would not have been able to exist. As it is stated, thus says Hashem, and this is what they're quoting, 
if my covenant with day and night would not be operative, had I not established, it says, the laws of heaven and earth. Jeremiah 33, 25. When it says, Midrash Tachuma says, then Jeremiah 33, 25, when it says my covenant, guess what it refers to? Isaac. Isaac is the reason why the heavens and the earth exist. Isaac, a prophetic picture of the Mashiach. This is, that's why he says my covenant. Who's the covenant? Who is the, who is the foundation of the covenant of the Brit? Yeshua. Look. So it says my covenant refers to Isaac. As it is stated, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Genesis 17.21. So again, we are starting to see a, a, a picture and a type and a shadow here of the Messiah himself concerning Toldot, concerning the generations, right? Understanding that through the deeds that we do make a big difference, understanding that what we pass on to our next generation, folks, even if you don't have a son, okay, literally son, whoever you raise, it is one who you begotten. It's very, very interesting. As a matter of fact, Scripture gives it more authority. And honestly, it's actually more authoritative than to just somebody have, you know, a, a son, if you want to call it, through natural means. Because what really matters is what values are you bringing up your children with? This is the key that the Scripture is trying to connect. Look, Genesis 17, 19 says, Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him see the connection in here is through isaac is when he's going to establish the covenant prophetic talking about the mashiach you see and then it says and with his descendants after him the question is who are the descendants after him because it says both through him well we got that answered but then through his descendants he says Look, Or Chaim says this, the true offspring of the righteous are their good deeds. In other words, scripture, Or Chaim is saying that really to even be considered an offspring will be one who is actually partaking of the good deeds. This is the reason why Ishmael is not mentioned here, if you noticed, but Isaac is. Look. The various trials Isaac underwent during his life are not uh, specifically described as such by the Torah, although it was he who offered his life to God on the altar at Moriah. Okay. The Torah describes Isaac once more as a true offspring of Abraham, someone who was in no way inferior, listen to what I say, inferior to his father, in love for and obedience to God. This is the true definition of an offspring family. The offspring is the one who literally emulates the father or emulates the righteous deeds of the heavenly father. Amen. This is stressed both by the word Ben Abraham and the conjunctive, uh, conjunctive letter Vav before the word Eleh. Because notice that the parasha says Ve'eleh. Toldot. Okay? So there's a conjunction there. And there's connecting one, uh, one sentence to another. 
So it, it, it's, it all comes back to Isaac continue to accumulate what? Deeds just as Abraham had done before him as well. Deeds that were worthy, in other words. Amen? So look, John 8.39, this is the reason why Yeshua said this now. In John 8.39, Yeshua said, They answer and said to him, Abraham is our father. See, now hopefully this is going to start making sense now, why he was arguing with them and, and how he was rebuttaling with. Yeshua said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Why? Because we just read in the Orchaim that the offspring is the one who follows the deeds of Abraham. <laughs> See, it's a really, really beautiful connection when we see it. This is why he's reciting this back to, or, re, or rather rebuttaling back to them on their, on their response to, well, Abraham is our father. Why? Because they were relying on what? The bloodline. Well, we, we're bloodline Abraham, so we can do whatever we want. No. She was saying, no, this is not a qualification. And they understood this, by the way. They understood this very, very well. So now we're going to connect the word to all generations in connection with the first fruits. Because this is important. Now that we understand that Toldot really carries the connection and the weight of doing the deeds of Abraham, and we all consider here descendants of Abraham, whether through bloodline or through the deeds, but remember, it's through the deeds that really counts the most, okay? Now we're going to see how Abraham's descendants also first fruits through this parasha. Look, very, very interesting. Parasha opens up by saying, Ve'elet Toldot, right? This is really, really cool. If you really look at the Gematria, of these two words, it reveals something very beautiful. When it says, and this is the generation. And the word, ve'ele, and toldot, this word ve'ele has a gematria value of 42. Which 42 also in scripture means gadol, something that's great. Okay? That's what great means, gadol. And then toldot has the gematria of 840 in Hebrew. That number equals to rule, like, you know, to rule over you or, or you know, to, to be sovereign. So there's a beautiful connection with these two when you put them together. But before we do that, I want to share something with you because in here, this word for toldot, which is, we already translated to the generations, right? And it means generation that will rule, right? If you go and take 840, I don't want to confuse you too much with numbers in here for those who are not good with math, but it's very pretty simple. 840, which is toldot, which means to rule. If you take that to the Septuagint, in Greek, it gives you this one, and that is aparchi, not apache, aparchi, okay? <laughs> and what is aparchi? First fruits. So the toldot in Hebrew which is 840 has the same gematria value of the Greek for first fruits, family. This is amazing. Toldot is the, is the generation they will rule who are also known as the first fruits. Look, Romans 8.23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body so look if you put it together now with that understanding it is 
the first fruits who are also going to be ruled and they're going to be great, essentially. But it's more than that because if you look at this word, ve'eleh, has the same words for the name of Eloha, which is God. In other words, the first fruit, what the, word, the wording in, in a deeper layer is saying that this first fruit is going to rule and reign with God. In the very, I mean, it's right there, very, very encrypted, really, really beautiful in there. Could it be true? Look, 2 Timothy 2.12 says this. We, if we endure, right? If we endure, there's a clause, we shall also reign with him. <laughs> That's what vele toldor is giving us the indication. Vele, it means that we're going to be the first fruits of toldor. But in order to qualify for his first fruit, we have to be the ones who are also in the image of Abraham. Following the deeds of Abraham, which goes back to the Torah. You see, everything connects very beautifully. When you start seeing all these pieces and you put them together. So if we deny him, he also will deny us as well. So now moving on the parasha, Genesis 25, 20 to 21 says, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebecca, his wife. This is a picture of the final geulah, by the way, the final redemption. Okay, let's look at this. Whenever scripture gives us a number, usually there's a, uh, there's a reason. There's a teaching behind it, okay? Because really, we didn't need to know that Isaac was 40 years old. He could have been 100 for all we care. As far as the reader goes, we don't care. We just, what, we just need to know that he married. But why is the scripture pointing out 40 years old when he did marry? So let's see this. Gimatria gives us this value. It's really, really interesting. The number 40 in Hebrew is goel. That's the Grimatria value of 40 also has the same Grimatria value for the word Goel in Hebrew. And what is Goel and the Redeemer? Interesting. And by the way, I'm not just pulling these out of my head. You can actually go back to scripture and literally that and the Redeemer, you'll find it in parts of scripture. Guess what? I just put one in here for you guys today. <laughs> what is the scripture out of Isaiah 59 20? Look what it says. And the Redeemer, 40, shall come to Zion and into them that turn from transgression. And Jacob, says the Lord, this is talking about the final Geulah, the final redemption. When Jacob will, what, will repent from his transgression and come and turn to the Lord. Okay, when you're turning to the Lord, that's another idiom for you getting married. You're coming back. There's a, uni there's a union in here. You see? And this is why it says in uh, the Isaac married at 40. Symbolizing and indicating the final redemption. Because remember, Isaac is a prophetic picture of the Messiah. And now he's marrying the bride. You're getting this. This is the whole point of the whole, uh, of the whole uh, teaching right now. So it says... That in Isaiah 59, 20, the, and the Redeemer, just make a note in there, that is the same value in Gematria for this parasha here, and that is number 40 for when Isaac married Rebekah. Amen. So now Genesis 25, 20 says, now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife, okay, because she was barren. 
And the Lord granted his plea and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. This is an amazing, amazing messianic prophecy. Because it says in here, this, and in a minute it's going to make a lot more sense. It says that Isaac pleaded. Now, according to Hazal, him and his wife were together that day when they were praying. She was literally opposite of him, and they both went to the field to pray. Okay? A couple things that, that this lesson is teaching us in here. It is first and foremost understanding the power of prayer, but why is it that a lot of times our prayers don't get answered? It's because we're not praying the right way. This part of shine here actually is going to give us a lot of insight in how we get answer prayers. First of all, we have to have the right motives, right? That's number one, praying for the right things. But even if we're praying for the right things, sometimes we need to understand what is the key ingredient. And in here, we're going to see it. But let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves in here right now. It's, let's open up by saying Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because his wife was barren. Let's look at this from a messianic prophecy from a point of view there. Okay. Is the bride of Mashiach barren today? Yes. What does it mean to be barren? You're not producing fruits. <laughs> So let's get that understanding that the bride of Mashiach has been barren, we can say. It's starting to produce fruit, but it's been barren up to this point, right? And what is it that the Mashiach has been doing since he died and resurrected and went into the Holy of Holies, it says, right? What has he been doing? Well, it says that he is now the officiating high priest, Kohen Hagadol, right? And what does he do as a Kohen Hagadol? He intercedes. <laughs> and who is he interceding for? Israel, his people. What was Isaac doing in here? Interceding for his bride. And what is Mashiach interceding in the heavenlies for? That the bride may be fruitful. For the bride to not be barren anymore. This is what's so beautiful about this. So look, Isaac pleaded with the Lord. In Hebrew, the way that reads, it says, Vayetar Yitzach Le-Yehovah, it says. So this word that I highlighted in here is the word for pleaded, okay? When it says that Isaac pleaded, it is Vayetar. What is Vayetar? It is from the Hebrew word Atar, which means to burn incense, and more specifically, that word atar literally means like a very, very thick, and I mean an extremely thick cloud of smoke. Okay? That's why it's connected with the incense. So it means to burn incense and worship, to pray. What happened? There was an altar in the tabernacle that the, the Levites will go to, and they will apply incense, and the incense will arise. And what were they doing there? was the altar of incense which they what pray so they will pray and the and the smoke will go up so it was symbolic of the prayers ascending to who to hashem right so it says that Vayetar, he that's what he did now we know he wasn't burning incense in there but it's alluding to that right there meaning his prayer was fervent you know it says that when yeshua before he got crucified he was praying and interceding says that he even sweat blood i mean that's how fervent his prayer was i've never 
met anybody that's sweated blood before. Okay? But, it, I mean, I, I cannot even fathom or imagine the intensity of his prayer. But Isaac's prayer in here was somewhat in, uh, similar in that it, the scripture contrasts and compares it because it could have said tefillah. What is tefillah in Hebrew? Tefillah means prayer, the book of Psalms. So it could have had the choice word of just, hey, I, I, you know, Isaac had tefillah, that's it. He's just praying. But it doesn't use that word for prayer. And it chooses to use this one to catch our attention. To make us understand it wasn't just, okay, Father, can you please make sure that Rebecca gets birth? No. There was something more intense about this prayer. Let's look at this. Rashi says this. It is, in my opinion, that what, uh, wherever a form of the word ater is used and means imploring and increasing. Okay? Similarly, vayater and a thick cloud of smoke, meaning in an increasing amount of ascending smoke. Now, this is going to make sense in here because when we look at this now in Gimatria, the word for vayater right here, which is the one that says, and he pleaded, is the value is 686. Now, that 686 is the Greek equivalent for weep. In other words, Isaac was praying intensely, but as he was praying intensely, he was weeping. This is very, very interesting, folks. This is, look, this is why Yeshua said this. Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, it says, for you shall laugh. Why, why, we, why are we weeping now? Because the idea is that we are in prayer now. Look, let me share. Gematria again. I want to share something with you. That word in Gematria, when we look at the word, the prayer in Gematria, which is hatefilah, okay, equals 520, right? Guess what? The word tears equals 520. Connection there. The prayers and the tears have the same gematria value. And we see this even in the Greek connecting with weeping. Isaac is in the field praying intensely and weeping for his wife. Something that the Mashiach would have done for his bride as well. But look. This is how and why is this so powerful in here? Because Hatefilah and Demulot, which is tears, carry the same value. Something very interesting that I found in here. Prayers through tears is what we're lacking today. Because the father will be moved when he actually sees your tears. And when you're praying with tears, here's the thing about tears. You can't fake him for the most part. In other words, your heart has to be behind the prayer. You getting this? Look, prayer through tears can be understood through the word Shaddai. How many of you heard that word before? El Shaddai. 
right? Look at this. This is really cool. When you look at the word Shaddai, there's an acronym in there. The acronym for Shaddai is going to blow your mind because we're just talking about how Isaac is actually in the field and we're discovering through the Torah that he's not just sitting there praying. He's not just saying at the filah, but he is sitting there weeping in tears in a fervent prayer that it was so powerful that it took a woman from a state of being barren to a state of being fruitful. Talk about the power of prayer. I mean, what are the odds and the possibility? How can you fix that? A woman who's barren to produce fruit. Only the prayer can do that. So why do we put prayer as the last resort and not the first one? When the most miraculous things that have happened in history have come through prayers. And this is what we're trying to understand. This is the message that we've seen through uh, Isaac in the field. This is what Mashiach is doing right now. Pleading for his bride. How is it that we know with a certainty that all Israel will be saved? Because the promise, but because of the prayer. Remember, he stands in the Holy of Holies interceding for you now. In tears, praying to the Father for you. That's how we know it will come to pass. When we look at uh, when we look right now at the situation, it looks completely hopeless. As a matter of fact, I have had people say, "You know what? I'm so discouraged." And literally, they had, they walked away from this because it just looks so hopeless. It's never going to be done. And my answer to that is, well, how can a barren woman become fruitful overnight? If you can answer that, then and you can believe that, how can you not believe that the bride is going to become fruitful? So look, the word Shaddai. Let's look at this together, guys. Shaddai is an acronym for Sha'ari, which is my gates in Hebrew. That's the large sheen, right? Then you got the Dalet, which is an acronym for Demaot, which means the tears. And then you got the Yod, which is Yiftecha, will open. The acronym put it in together says my gates will open up with tears. The sages of Israel say that this is all concerning the Messiah as he pleads for the gates to be open in Jerusalem for his bride to enter. My gates will be open. How? With tears. And now that's going to make more sense now. What tears? Tefillah. Prayers, prayers, the tears that come out with prayers, folks. That's how, that's how we win the battle. That's our power. That's our authority. See, in order for us to pray those kind of prayers, they will, they will literally take a barren woman and make her fruitful. Our hearts, thank you. Your heart has to be there. Because when your heart is there, now you're praying from the heart and your tears come out. And the Messiah, those, those tears and those words now become yater. They become the smoke that sends to his throne. And you could guarantee as God's vengeance that your prayer will be answered. This is amazing, family. Really, really, really amazing. 
Look, Psalms 39, 12, look what it says. Hear my prayer, O Lord, right? And give ear to my what? Cry. Demaot, by the way. Do not be silenced at my tears. What is he doing? Why David, by the way, David is another figure of the Messiah. How is it that the King David fell on his face so many times and prayed in tears? Why is it that he is called man after God's own heart? You see? So it says in here, and give ear to my cry and do not be silenced my tears. For I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Wow. Who is he addressing? All my fathers. Could it be possibly Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov to start with? Not limited to that, but to start with. Oh, Hashem. So we're going to conclude today with this family. The birth of Esau and Jacob now. So now the promise is given. We see something very prophetic in the prayers. We see something we learned so far. How amazing Toldot is and the connection with being begotten. So we can all say here today firmly that we are all begotten of God. Why? Because we're following the example of his instructions. That's what a begotten means. This is why Yeshua said what he said. So now we have the birth of Esau and Jacob. Now this is going to concluding with this is very powerful, especially for concerning the latter days. Because I believe that today in, these, in this time, in this season, we have a big problem today, family. And the, the problem is that we're fighting two kingdoms. Not only are we fighting two kingdoms, we're being deceived. Because there's two kingdoms at large right now. Let's see this. Genesis 25, 22 to 23 says this. But the children struggled together with her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? The sages of Israel said that the reason why she said this is because she felt that she was going to actually have a miscarriage. Why did she feel that she was going to have a miscarriage? Because of the Hebrew word for struggle. We're going to see that in a minute. So Rebecca literally felt that she was going to have a miscarriage. But God promised a seed for her, and now she's feeling like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to end up miscarrying these, these boys, all these children that I'm going to have. So that's why she said, if all is well, why am I like this, essentially? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So first of all, when it says that the children struggle, which is why she felt that she was going to have a miscarriage, according to Hazal, is because in Hebrew it says, Vait Rotzezu Ha Banim. It says, It is that first word right here, which is Ratzatz, which means to crack in pieces, to break, to bruise. So, whatever was going on in the womb, there was a war going on. There was some, uh, some crackling, some oppressing, I mean, breaking, all this. And she just felt like, oh, man, I'm about to just, I'm going to have a miscarriage here. But, wow, it just shows you that there was such an animosity right in the womb taking place in here. Because, you see, the, the word struggle doesn't give it really, really uh, the justification of what the word really means. So why is it that they were struggling? Why is it that they was discouraged, by the way? There was discouragement even in the womb concerning this. So look, 
says two nations are in your womb. The problem with that is that in Hebrew it doesn't say two nations. In Hebrew it says two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. This is very big, folks. Because every single body in the world, if you're standing here today and you're walking on this earth, you are living by a kingdom. One way or the other. What is a kingdom? A ruling system. That's it. A ruling system. How you live your life, the dictates of your life, all these different things. What moves you? Why you make the decisions that you make? Everything. Your thought process all includes a kingdom. Okay? So there's two kingdoms. And we see it here with Esau and Jacob. Now, you want to hear something pretty scary? That these two kingdoms are actually twins. They were twins. Esau and Jacob were twins. This is important, folks, especially concerning these last days. Because the enemy is using this to deceive and to lead people astray. Why? Because they're twins. They look alike. They probably even smell alike. See? Same father. You know? But look. Two nations are in your wombs. The Sforno says this. The cause of the struggling within you is because they are destined. Look what Sforno says. I love what he wrote. They are destined to be two nations, two kingdoms, with opposing ideas of religion. <laughs> Esau's kingdom has an ideology of religion. Jacob's kingdom has another ideology of religion. But they're twins. They look alike. You getting where I'm going with this? Because this is what we're battling in these last days, family. It looks the good. It looks the same. But why are, we, why are we not coming in agreement with a lot of, I like to call it, basic foundations? Look. Svodno continues to say this. Two nations are in your womb. The Torah uses two terms, nations and peoples. Meaning, the first refers to a community of faith. That's number one. And the second to a political national entity. So it has to do with your faith and your entity. Meaning, what is it that we have today that's the biggest problem? Identity crisis. <laughs> Identity crisis. But the Sforno actually links, links this together with Jacob and Esau. Interesting. Right off the bat. Which is why we're struggling so much. Where do I fit in? Who am I? What should I be thinking? How should I be dressing? How should I be wearing? Kind of like fit on the roof. What to eat, what to work, how to say this. But it forms an identity that in here we see the basis of the separation between Jacob and Esau. Look, Genesis 25, 27. So the boys grew up, right? And it says, And Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Now, in, in Judaism, 
Esau and Jacob not only are known as two ideologies of two religion, but they are also known as two two figures, two two messianic figures, essentially. Okay. Now, what I want to share here today is this, because it says that Esau. Let's start with Esau. It says that Esau was a skillful hunter and man of the field. Okay. Now remember, they're twins. And they, f- and they are the basis for two forms of ideology of religion and political and identity, so to speak, a national identity. Okay? So let's start with Esau. It says that Esau was a skillful man. So it says, Vaigdelu ha na'arim. Then it says, Vayehi esav ish yodea zayit ish sade. It says, so it opens up by saying that Esau, first of all, was uh, Esav Ish, a man who knew Yodea. It says Zayit Ish Sadeh. Let's look at the first word in here, Zayit and Zadeh, because both cases is the identification that the Torah has given us for this, na- this man named Esau. Okay, this is important. We have to understand this out of all the teachings because this directly connects to you. And I mean in more direct ways that you can imagine. Okay, so let's look at this. Gematria is interesting. Zayit is what we know as hunter. You know, it says that he was a hunter, man of the field. And the field is Sadeh in Hebrew. That's field. I put him in there for you so you can see him. The translation. Now, what's interesting about this, that the gematria for hunter is 104. Guess what the gematria for 104 in the Torah is also? Sodom. Like Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) The word Sodom is the same. And we read this out of Genesis 13, 10. It says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou come into Zoar. Now, what is the point why I brought this up? It's not so much for you to focus on Sodom, but rather because this scripture reference is connected, or it's actually shared with 104 what the Torah is revealing is that Sodom, how did Sodom look in here when Lot lifted up his eyes? Beautiful. Beautiful. See, it says in here that even as the garden of the Lord, Sodom is compared to the garden of Eden. It was beautiful. In the eyes of Lot and probably even Abraham, it looked good. Okay? So keep that in mind. Then it says, so the hunter is connected with Saddam, which is something that looks beautiful and good. That's not the definition of Saddam, by the way. I'm just saying that Saddam is connected with that. Okay? Now we have, he's also a man of the field. Sadah. And the gematria value for that one is 309, which translates the 309 is also the spoil. Like spoils of war, sort of to speak, right? It means wealth obtained by oppression or violence. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Sodomites were known for that. 
They were not just known for their immoral ways. They were mo they were also known because they didn't they didn't apply righteous justice to the poor. They were stealing. I mean, they were violent. So we started to see a picture in here of the character of Esau, so to speak. Okay. So what is the connection on 309? The spoil? Wealth obtained by oppression or violence? It's out of Psalms 12.5. Look what Psalms 12.5 says. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighting of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns, essentially. This is concerning the Psalms 12.5. Those who are crying out to the Lord. Because what justice has not been applied. Righteous justice, should I say. Now, what's the point of all this? Because Esau is a man, the, the sages say also, and there was a lot in here that the sages wrote that I put in here. But the, they say that Esau was a man who knew how to work the earth, so to speak. He knew the system. He knew, as a matter of fact, he was so good at what he did that this is the reason why he was actually so good that one of the reasons why Isaac really felt strongly that he will be the next leader. You're getting this. Why did Isaac thought he would be the next leader? Well, and actually, we know that for a fact because he wanted to impart the blessing upon him. Right? But why? Because he was a man, a go-to man, man. He can do anything. Right? Sort of to speak. He brought the wealth that was needed. But the problem is not so much with the wealth. The problem is the connection with the spoil and Saddam. That's what we're talking here. Sodom. The, the, the ruling system that Sodom had. By the way, the reason why I put that reference in there for Lot. Is because even when Lot saw Saddam and Gomorrah. And even at that time before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah was highly admired by the entire world. Kind of like Egypt. Egypt was very, very well respected. That's the word that I was looking for. A very respected nation. Why do I say this, family? Because remember, let's rewind. I said that Esau and Jacob are two kingdoms. Two kingdoms, two messianic uh, prefigures. They are twins also, right? I'm going to submit something to you here today. Esau is wicked as it can be, right? We understand this. In the inside, he's wicked. But in the outside, Esau looks good. In other words, because of, the, because of his abilities, because of the nature of our flesh, what we see, what we see in the flesh. What happened, what happened when Samuel went to ordain David? What did Samuel said? Lord, is this the one? This little kid right here? He's going to be the leader for Israel? What? See? Here's the problem with mankind, folks. We see through our own eyes. We don't see through the eyes above. We have to be very, very careful about that family, honestly. Because the problem is, just as we make those judgments on our daily lives concerning that, we're unfortunately doing that with Messiah as well. This is the reason why Messiah is not highly accepted today. 
And I'm going to exp explain why. Esau looks very good on the outside, but inside he's evil. And I'm going to submit the opposite. Jacob is righteous inside, but he looks wicked out. Why is he wicked outside? Well, let's look at Jacob. So it says, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. How is it that that looks wicked? I'm going to share with you in just a minute. Why? Let's see. And Jacob, it says, Ve'yakov ishtam Yosef o halim, it says. So it says, Ve'yakov ishtam Yosef o halim. Jacob is a man who is what? Tam. What is tam? From the word what? Tamim, tamay. What is tamay? Clean and acceptable. Without a spot or a wrinkle. By the way, that terminology, tam, it's only applied to animals when they're being offered in the altar. Interesting that it's applied here to a human being. He is a perfect offering. He is a man who is blameless. We can even say that a tam in Hebrew, in Jewish thought, a tam is a person who's transparent. You know, when it says in the scripture, when God says, walk before me, do you know that in Hebrew, that literally means to be transparent, to walk transparent with me, meaning kind of like what Yeshua, when he saw um, in the book of John, um, Philip, I think it was, he said, look at this, a true Israelite. Yeah, there's nothing, Nathaniel, there's nothing false in him that's the meaning of transparent when he says walk before me that's why yeshua saw nathaniel he said that to him essentially saying he is blameless he's a thumb essentially so jacob is a thumb and it says that he yoshev or halim says that he dwells not in a tent or halim is plural tents what does that mean Dwells in tents. I can understand dwells in a tent, but tents, plural? Well, even if you move, you're still in one tent. <laughs> so let's look at this. Rashi says, look, a plain man, Tom, not expert, not expert in all these things. What do you mean not expert in all these things? He was not an expert as Esau was. He was just a kind of man that if you met him, unless you were into Bible talk, man, he could have been pretty boring. But if you talk to Esau, man, this dude, I can glean from this guy. From Jacob, no. I mean, unless I'm going to do Sunday Bible study, right? <laughs> Not Sunday, Saturday. Right? You're getting this. This is what Rashi, I'm not coming up with this, folks. This is Rashi. And some of the, a lot of the commentators of Hazar says the same thing. They come in agreement. Says that Jacob was not an expert in all these things as his heart was his mouth, it says. Now, this is a great teaching. My God is so good, this teaching. But we didn't have time to put it in today. Because when he went in to talk to Isaac, when Isaac said the voice is the voice of who? Esau. No, not Esau. 
right the voice of jacob carries a power folks and we're not going to get into that today but it kind of lines up with what it says in here because it says that his heart was his mouth his thoughts and his words tally in other words one who is not ingenious in deceiving people is called a thumb true if i could translate that today to 21st century america you just boring dude simply put you just i don't know what to say you kind of like white rice with no flavor <laughs> but nonetheless he was blameless okay this is the kind of the contrasting that we see in here he was dumb and it says yoshef aholim dwelling in tents rashi says that the tent of shem and the tent of eber genesis rabbah says that the reason why it says tense in plural is because he actually was studying under the academy of Shem and Eber. Same thing. So it's very, very interesting what the, the terminology dwelling in tense just literally means that he was a Torah scholar. He dedicated his life to studying the Torah. Okay. While Jacob, while Esau was a man who was what? Hunting and gathering. Okay, so now let's look at this from the perspective. Why is it that one looks evil and the other one looks good? But it's vice versa. Because the one who's, the, who's providing everything for the family, who's, you know, who ha who's a go-getter, that's the one that in the eyes today we say that's righteous. Yes, the eyes of men. But the one who doesn't possess any of these qualities on the eyes of men is like, no, that guy's not good. Why you think Yeshua was despised? Because he didn't have the prestige. What were they looking for? They were looking for a conqueror who will come and conquer Rome. See? A conqueror. A man of an Esau, basically. See? What does religion do today? You know, when we talk about Mashiach, we serve the Messiah of Israel. What is it that most people are inclined or are more led to follow? The Messiah who looks more like Esau. Unfortunately. Because he looks good in the outside. He's a conqueror. You know, name it and claim it. You know, you know, all these different things, you see? And the outside is prosperous, by the way. But in the inside, it's no bueno. See, we're not following the God of Israel right now, the Messiah of Israel, because he looks more like Jacob. He's not giving me prosperity like Esau does. He's not giving me every, all the knowledge that I want to know. He's not giving me the glory that I want. Esau, re, really, Esau, re, it's equal to glory, family. See, but in the inside, that's what's so deceiving about them. Because they are twins. That's the problem. Two messiahs, twins. One looks good, the other one looks evil. How many times people, are, I don't know if you ever come across this, now that you are following Torah, they call you evil? Yeah. Honestly, if you haven't heard that terminology yet, give it a minute, you will. Amen. Oh, that, that Messiah, didn't, no, 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 that's not the one that we serve. Amen. They'll flat out tell you. They'll flat out tell you. Okay, why do they say that? Why do they say that? Today, hopefully, you can come with an answer. Two kingdoms, two ideologies, twins one looks good 
The other one looks ugly. But the one who looks ugly in the inside is good. That's the whole thing. See? And this is what we're fighting today. We're fighting Esau and Jacob today, family. My prayer today is that we will follow, that we will take these goggles out of flesh and blood and that we will put on the goggles of spirit so that we can see. You know, this has always been the problem with mankind. We see it throughout scripture. Like I said, the another example was Samuel who refused to a degree to anoint King David because he didn't see him as worthy. There were so many of the, the brothers of, of Jesse. There, they were, there were so many of them that looked the, the role, right? They were powerful. So we need to start looking at things. Torah in this world today looks very small. It looks like you, you can't get anything out of it. And it almost seems like people who walk in Torah are walking in a curse. It appears that way. It can appear that way. Just like Jacob. But the reality is there's a blessing awaiting. So we need to continue in this in this walk. Continue to press forward. And we need to accept and believe and follow the kingdom of Jacob family. Because that is the kingdom that will stand at the end. By the way, I'm going to leave you with this for today. The terminology for Yaakov. What does Yaakov mean? Surplanter, right? Ekef is from the Hebrew word ekef. But do you know that also Yaakov, Ekev, also means N? Because, you know, N is like the last kind of thing. First and last, N. But the sages said that Yaakov, who also means N, really is a blessing because it means that Jacob will be, be the one standing at the end. When it's all said and done, folks, last, the end, he will be the one standing while all the nations will actually crumble. Amen. All right, Baruch Hashem, family. Uh, this is going to be a very short teaching because it's very, very clear in what, here, let me just find this real quickly, what the message is here today. Now, we read today in the Torah portion, which we didn't cover today, was how really it says that Esau despised his birthright. Okay, right now we didn't cover that today, but it was in this parsha, and we see something very similar taking place in here, and what the prophet uh, Malachi is trying to address to the people. It says, for instance, in chapter one twelve, but you defile it by your saying, "The table of the Lord is loathsome." What is the table of the Lord? Right. Let's think of the Shuchan of Hashem. What is the table of the Lord? Think in terms of the offerings. Okay. The, what you bring and what you present to him. You know, now we, in, in terms of the sacrifices, remember the sacrifices was also, even back then, they were connected to your deeds. Because you brought offerings of praise and worship to the king. So what does Yeshua said? If you have an issue with your brother, or you hate your brother, leave your what? Your gift and do not bring it to the altar. You see, because it all connects to the heart. It all connects to the deeds of the person. Why is it that Cain's uh, sacrifice was not accepted, but Abel was? 
Same situation. It all has to do with the person. Now we can see in here that we see character traits in here of the people of Israel connecting it with Edom, which is Esau. They, they didn't like the table of the Lord. They found it repulsive. Their hearts were not into it. These are all the character traits of Esau. And what this message of this uh, half Torah portion, Malachi, is trying to address in here is essentially what's going to be the outcome for Esau. See, in the Torah portion, we reveal, or rather, the Father reveals the character of Esau, right? And through here, one thing that I'm seeing also is that through here, We've seen that now the priests have taken, unfortunately, remember we talked about two kingdoms, two ideologies, Esau and Jacob, right? Okay, the priests are now really technically falling into that following the kingdom of Esau. Because remember, Esau looks glorious, but inside he's polluted. What were they doing in here? They were bringing the glorious offering. But what was the issue? They were polluted inside. This is the things that you have to see as we go through the Haftorah to understand why is it that the prophet is addressing. It says in here, the prophecy of the word of Hashem to Israel. So this word is not necessarily Malachi's word. It is the word that Hashem has towards his people by the hand of Malachi. It says, I loved you says Hashem, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau the brother of Jacob, the word of Hashem? Yet I love Jacob, he says, but I hated Esau. How many times have we have asked Hashem, how is it that you love us? Now you have to ask this question, why are they asking? Even this question, you notice how this is presented in here? It says, how have you loved us? Now, what kind of question is that? Is that a rhetorical question? How have you loved us? What do you mean, how have you loved us? Can you honestly say that today? How has Hashem loved me? Or is that a God-given? <laughs> but you see, a lot of times we don't, well, basically what I'm going with is a lot of times we don't see the love of the Father in our lives. We don't see it. That's the problem. You know, what we see as God is abandoning me is God actually loving you. Oh, Hashem. So it says in here, oops, lost my, that he hates Esau, right? And what I would like to propose in here is I want to read this in Hebrew because it says, Ve'et esaf sa ne'ati. That word for hate, it is the Hebrew word saneati. Okay. And it's interesting that this gematria uh, value for saneati is actually 761, right? And 761 also means destruction. What he's revealing is what he's going to do with Edom in the latter days destruction look this word comes out of leviticus chapter 26 32 and
hopefully in Leviticus 26:32 it'll make sense why we you know why we take in this direction. Leviticus 26:32 says, "I will make the land desolate." It says. That's the word there for seven. Uh, that's the word in there for 761, which is hate. Okay. <coughs> and it says in here, I will make the land desolate and your foes whom dwell upon it will be desolate. Now, this is from Parashah Bechukotai. And this is out of Leviticus chapter 26. And this is the blessing and the cursing. What are the blessing and the cursing? That's what's going to happen. Why you receive the curses and why you receiving the blessings. And here <coughs> in the uh, prophet Malachi here is addressing the issue with Israel because of their repulsive offerings. And that basically in a, in, a, in a nutshell, the national disrespect that they have towards God. And ba basically he's, ad he's addressing now what's going to happen, which is the curse, which goes back to Esau. Which goes back to why? Because Esau was cursed. Why? Because it says that he hated, he despised his birthright. Now, <clears throat> based on what we read today in the character of Esau, you got to really entertain me this for a minute. Because what we read in the character of Esau, it absolutely makes no sense. If we understand the birthright, to be equated with possessions. Because Esau was a go-getter. Why would Esau despise his birthright? If the birthright have anything to do with Kesef. Think about it. So there was something about this birthright. That in the eyes of Esau. He didn't see valuable. Now let's translate this to the world today. How many people actually see the Torah as valuable today? But yet, it is a heritage. Yet, Scripture says it's a jewel. But the world doesn't see it as that. Does it? And in the same way, Esau didn't see the birthright as valuable. Why? Jacob was fighting for the birthright. Jacob saw it valuable. Jacob saw it. You know what? I'm willing to do whatever it takes to obtain it because I see the value in it. And I know that my brother doesn't, essentially. And this is really what the prophet here is addressing concerning the nation of Israel. In verse 6, it says, A son will honor his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor, he says. And if I am a master, where is my fear? Part of the problem that we have today is that there is no fear of God. The minute we start having fear of God, folks, guess what happens? It's like a, uh, what do you call it, like a domino effect. You hit one little domino, they all, you know, crumble. It's, it, that's the effect. If you have fear of God, remember what we addressed today about prayer? You will fervently pray. You will pray with the right heart. You will have the tears. They will open up the gates. You see? But it starts with the fear of heaven. If we don't have fear, folks... We have nothing. What was happening in here with these people? They were bringing, as a matter of fact, here. Here he goes. It says in here, 
And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says Hashem, master of legions to you, the Kohanim who scorn my name. These are the Kohanims. These are the priests. These are the people who should be carrying and bearing the name of Hashem. Yet you say, how have we scorned your name? You know, this reminds me of the day when Hashem is going to pass judgment. This is what people are going to say. And how have we defiled your word, Hashem? And how have we fallen to paganism, Hashem? Because they're not going to see it. They're not going to see that they're doing anything wrong any more than these people thought they were doing wrong. Notice how they're questioning him. And he answers, you present on my altar, on my altar, loathsome food. And you say, how have we loathed you? By your saying, the table of Hashem is repulsive. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, it's nothing wrong, he says. And when you present a lame or a sick animal, it's nothing wrong. Present it, if you please, to your governor. Would he be pleased if you now entreat God and, and he be gracious unto us? Wow. Think about that. You know, I will submit to you that based on what we're reading in here, they probably were presenting the best offerings to the governors. I guarantee you. I'm going to find it one day. I guarantee you I'll find it in, in one of, the, in one of the, the teachings of Hazad because they were presenting. If they're presenting all the leftovers to him, so where is all the good stuff going? Think about it. It's got to be going somewhere besides the tummy. You know, so I will submit to you that this is why they said that there was no fear. Where's my fear? If there was fear for me, then you would be bringing me the best and bringing the sick animals and the lame ones to your governor. But instead, you're doing it vice versa. Interesting. And this is the connection that we see with the prophet Malachi here in connection with Esau. Esau has no respect for God. Esau has no fear of God. Esau depends on the works of his own hands. That's, that's Esau's God, by the way. Now, we see that throughout all scripture, by the way. You know, what is the, uh, the reprimand that he has for his people consistently throughout scripture? Of them developing idols, molding idols, bowing down to them, and relying on the works of their hands. This is like a broken record throughout all scripture. Okay. That, why is it that Israel had to fight that for family? It's the same reason why we're fighting what we're fighting today. We're fighting two kingdoms. And like I presented when I started the Torah today, two kingdoms are in your womb. Two set of ideologies, two set of different fates. But they look the same. That's what's so scary about it. That for lack of a little illustration not picking on names, the Jesus of today versus the Yeshua of the scriptures. They're both saviors. They both supposedly are sons of God, right? But one, it's more geared towards a prosperity lifestyle and more of a fleshly lifestyle, whereas the other one is more of a Jacob, where you dwelling in tents studying Torah. And forsaking your life for the study of Torah. How do we fix this problem is the question. You know, how could we fix this problem? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. We can't. 
We can't fix the problem. Only the name of Shaddai can fix the problem. Because remember, what is Shaddai? The acronym for Shaddai. The one whose tears will open up the gates. The one who's interceding for Israel at this very moment. So, I want to leave us today with Prophet Malachi in that we bring Hashem the best of everything that we do. That we develop the fear for Hashem. But most importantly, what we learn from this Torah portion and this half Torah portion is that we learn to love the birthright and not despise it like Esau did. Now, you want to hear something scary? Already actually pretty interesting. It says that Esau despised his birthright, right? Now, Hazal pretty much interprets this as, you know, this has to, everything to do with the Torah. Everybody not understands this. Because through the Torah, the birthright has to do with the one who's going to proceed and carry on the next generation, passing it on, the heritage, right? But it says that Esau, twin brother Jacob, by the way, hated the birthright, okay? Think about this today. Your mainstream religion today hates Torah. True? What is your mainstream religion comes from today? Believe it or not, Edom. Because Rome, Rome is Edom. What is the Catholic Church? <coughs> sorry, come from Rome. I mean, it's, it's true. I'm not saying anything here that's untrue. And where is the Protestant movement come from? Rome. Yeah, which is Rome at the end of the day. So it's interesting that they hate Torah. They hate the Jew. And something that is very similar with Esau, they want the blessing. Later on, we find out of the Torah that Esau wanted the blessing. But he despised the birthright. What is the problem that we have in today? Everybody in religion wants the blessing of the Lord, but they don't want to follow Torah. You see that? That spirit is still very alive today is what I'm trying to present. Very much so alive. This is essentially what we came out of, by the way. Now, the issue, or not so much the issue, but the things that we need to recognize because we did come out of the system, folks, there's still things that we are unfortunately bringing in from that system. What is true, we're accepting and we're now we're saying, you know what, the birthright is good. Baruch Hashem, it is good. Now we need to start understanding that we need to switch kingdoms mindset see because we're crossing over to jacob but we're still thinking the philosophy of edom we still bring in philosophy that's all from edom esau so this process of crossing over essentially has to entail all of it so it can be whole and complete the prayer isaac's prayer today and, and hear the prophet Malachi, how he's interceding for Israel. The prayers have to be genuine and the prayers have to be fearful. There has to be a sense of fear within you. And there has to be, and at the end of the day, for you to be able to pray that kind of prayer, family, you cannot have the philosophy of Edom. Because the philosophy of Edom will never allow you to pray that way. Will never allow you to have that heart to pray that way. Because Edom is too selfish. That's the issue. 
Edom is all about him and what he can do as opposed to collectively what God is doing with his people and how we can be a role and a play a role and a part in what God is doing collectively with his people. So the calling here is very simple, family. Let's play a role collectively in what God is doing for his people. You know, there's um, there's a lot of things taking place right now in Israel, folks, that are really scary. I must tell you. You know, Netanyahu just got officially charged with crimes. And all this is taking place. All of this with Netanyahu is getting really ugly. There. The government in Israel is very, very, very. It's been a long time since this has happened. That's what's so scary. It's very unstable right now, the government. It's what elections coming up right now, and, and they don't have candidates. So it's, it's really, really, really not looking good. But it was interesting this, as this is happening with the prime minister of Israel, we have the impeachment with Trump here in the United States. You think that's coincidence? And, you know, again, not trying to play politi political games in here. I try to stay away from politics, but you can't, you cannot, but to sit here and, you know, think, hmm, things that make you go, hmm, right? Like both of them, through both of them, the embassy was moved to Jerusalem. And that was one thing that a lot of people were not happy with. And so happens to be that now they're both getting canned for the most part. Well, one for sure. The other one's still in limbo. But nonetheless, while all these things are happening and taking place and the American eye is all on this for the most part, there's other things that is taking place in the political agenda that we're not hearing about. Because our eyes are focused on the impeachment. And, and, and you know, of course, Netanyahu was taking place over there with charging other crimes. And that, I got to tell you, family, there's a lot of things taking place in movement right now that's it's bone chilling. You know, I, I generally believe, generally believe that we are truly coming real close to the latter days. I really generally believe it. Uh, it's, it's, it's there, you know. And, and the call, the point for this is not to go and get us prepped now. But the call for this is to awaken us. That's the really the reason. The reason is to awaken us to teshuva, to repent. But not just to repent, but to come together with the same vision. To work together collectively for God's people. That's the whole purpose for this. It's not for us to run to the mountain right now. <laughs> We're already in the mountain, right? <laughs> Gets a little bit too late for that. For a higher mountain, right? It's not for us to run to a higher mountain yet, but rather for us to start with, you know, before we can, you know, everybody's talking about running to the mountains, running to the mountains, the latter days. Family, I would not want to go to any mountain with a group of people that are completely disjointed. That is not good. It's not good at all. You know, if we're going to go to the mountain, we need to be together. We need to be jointed together. We need to be one essentially because then the journey is good and we can we can actually do the will of god but the body right now is so disjointed that yeah i wouldn't want to be caught dead in the, in the mountain with any of these people you know and that's the, that's the whole thing so we need to start working on unification which malachi here is preaching in a sense teshuvah unification for us teshuvah unification loving torah and how to be a part of a body, how to be a part of a whole. 
so that we can help the body increase and in thus usher in the Messiah. Amen. So let's start with first and foremost, before we can fulfill this, the Musad for today, the ethical teaching for today is that before we can actually do this, we need to start with switching the kingdoms. Two kingdoms, twins, I'm going to continue saying that. Two different ideologies, two different mindset, two different set of religions, but they're twins. We need to fully cross over to Jacob and be a part of Jacob and be unifying Jacob in order to fulfill a lot of these things that God wants us to do. So many people are so interested in the last days and running to the mountains. And I could tell you, it could be pretty exciting, I guess, right? But it can be very scary when you have a group of people that are not really unify because that equals disasters out there i mean if you don't believe me read the, the uh, read the book of exodus it can be bad real real bad so we have to be unified here now today okay i'm going to submit to you in something bigger we have to be unified and we have to keep ourselves in encouragement even when things are not going well because it's so easy to be unified and be very happy when everybody's getting what they want. But what happens when we don't get what we want together? <laughs> That's not good because everybody's in a bad mood now. And now we start treating and belittling one another. So this is why I believe the Father has us where he has us. Many of us in here are off-gridders. There's a reason for that. But teaching you something. The snow, the cold, the lack, everything. You know, and I'm really, really grateful, believe it or not, that all of you are here today. This is really, really amazing. I bless his name. I, I really praise the Lord to see all of you here today. You know what? And for those who are not here, it's because they really couldn't make it. I can guarantee you. You know, but the fact that you guys made it and made the effort to come out here in this snow, some of you travel far, says a lot about your character, says a lot about you and your dedication. That's good. Because this is what we're going to need when we're out there. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, brother. That's what we're going to need. We need this. So my prayer, and I'm going to ask the Father to give me more of a heart to pray with tears. That this body here in FLTW will become so unified and so jointed together. That we will grow and grow spiritually. And in the knowledge of the Lord. And the cause and growing wisdom along with knowledge of the word. Because you have to have wisdom combined together. That's another thing. That folks, nothing, and I mean nothing out there, will be able to move you. And that's, that's the goal. That's what at least my goal is that we will all become a migdol, a tower that is strong, that cannot be moved. And that's my prayer for all of us. And as the prophet Malachi said... In the same way, starting with the fear of the Lord and accepting the beauties and the things that he has for us. Starting with something very simple as coming to this tent to praise and worship the Lord. You know, I know you don't come in here for beauty. So that says a lot. Maybe for the good coffee, but that's as far as it goes. Right. But in reality, there's nothing beautiful about this tent. And that's the way it's supposed to be supposed to be simple because our focus is supposed to be in the word 
says that Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And lo behold, here we are dwelling in a tent. Amen. May we become Tamay so that, that we can be simple like Jacob. Amen. Okay, so we're doing the Bread Hadashah portion for Toldot. It is uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 16. And interestingly enough, it starts with the word however. There's an indication there that Paul is talking about something that he's uh, already mentioned something else. And so he's explaining this, but he's already mentioned this. So we're going to back up just a little bit so that we can, uh, so we can see what it is he's talking about. We're going to go back to chapter 9, verse 1. It says, it opens up with, I speak the truth, or I am speaking the truth as one who belongs to the Messiah, I do not lie, and also bearing witness is my conscience governed by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. My grief is so great, the pain in my heart so constant, that I could wish myself actually under God's curse and separated from Messiah if it would help my brothers, my own flesh and blood, the people of Israel. They were made God's children. The Shekinah has been with them. The covenants were theirs. Likewise, the giving of the Torah, the temple service, and the promises. The patriarchs are theirs. And from them, as far as his physical descent is concerned, came the Messiah, who is overall praised by Adonai forever. Amen. He goes in on verse 10, um, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 1 in chapter 10. He says, Truly, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to Elohim for Israel is for deliverance. I bear witness that they have an ardor for Elohim, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing the righteousness of Elohim and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of Elohim. For Messiah is the goal of the Torah unto righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, I received in the mail recently the Jewish New Testament. If you don't have the complete Jewish Bible, this is the New Testament for that. It's great, great tool. Um, it has a companion. The Jewish New Testament Commentary. And so I'm going to be teaching a little bit about out of that today. Don't let me forget those. Of course I won't. Of course I won't. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> so um, in the commentary, it's written by David Stern. In the commentary regarding the first five verses in chapter 9, it says he says, Shaul's anguish over the Jewish rejection of Yeshua shows him following in the footsteps of our great teacher Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. When Israel apostatized and built the golden calf, Moshe prayed in Exodus 32:32, "This people has sinned a great sin and I have made and have made themselves gods of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin and if not blot me, I pray, out of your book which you have written." God's answer to Moshe as written in Exodus 32:33 and 34 says, "Whoever has sinned against me, him I will blot out of my book." Therefore now go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. This angel has been identified as Yeshua Messiah himself. And the book is none other than the book of life. Every Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the synagogue liturgy, calls for Jews to pray that their sins will be forgiven and their names written in the book of life. Revelation 20.15 says, Those whose names are not written in it will burn in the lake of fire. Thus, Moshe, like Shaul after him, was willing to be under God's curse if it would help his fellow Jew. And Paul expresses that in the first five verses of 9 and again in 10. That his ardor, that he would give up his own salvation and receive God's curse if it should bring them 
to their repentance and to Yeshua Messiah. In the case of the Jews, has the word of God failed? Is God in any degree at fault for Israel's currently rejecting Messiah? These are the questions that David asks in his commentary. Interestingly enough, verse 6, the opening portion, the opening verse of our portion today, says it, but the present condition of Israel does not mean that the word of God has failed. Okay? We understand that God is sovereign in everything that he does, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. There is a commentary on the book of Romans written by Tim Hegg. It says, What may at the outset appear to be failure on God's part is in the final analysis rather to reveal his unfathomable wisdom in carrying out his full plan of redemption, not only for Israel, but also for all of the nations. We have to remember that Israel was blinded to Yeshua Messiah so that the nations could come in. Okay? And so our job is to present Messiah Yeshua, a lawful, faithful Son of God, a lawful, faithful Messiah, to them so that they can receive him. And we need to understand that their rejection of him is because of the blindness that God has put on them. Paul builds his argument on the immovable foundation of God's goodness. For if God has promised, surely he will keep his word. And the promises of God to Abraham and his seed involve blessing, not cursing. This blessing which will inevitably come upon all the families of the earth is ultimately and finally the blessing of eternal salvation. And this flows from God's having chosen covenant members to bless. Thus, the word of God here should be understood in this limited context to mean the covenant which he spoke to Abraham. A covenant that embraces all who would participate in the faith of Abraham. We need to remember at all times that there are two types of people. Those who have faith and those who do not. Those who have faith in the God of Israel have the faith of Abraham. Those who do not have faith, they're not the seed of Abraham. The explanation then that Paul now gives us is this, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Read literally from the Greek, for not all those out of Israel, they are Israel. Out of being understood to mean descended from. Thus Israel in the first instance refers to the individual, Jacob, while the second denotes the nation. Paul's point is quite simple and straightforward. Physical descendancy from the patriarchs does not guarantee citizenship in the chosen nation of Israel. It is a spiritual choosing. And because Jacob was a world was a was a man in the world, but God renamed him Israel, that was his spiritual name. And those who follow Jacob in his faith receive also the title of Israel. In fact, Paul's point from the outset of this section is that God is dealing with the present nation in exactly the same way as he dealt with the patriarchs, that is, on the basis of his election. If Ishmael, for example, was not chosen to be the progenitor of the chosen nation, yet was from the loins of Abraham, this proves the elective decree of God. In like manner, Esau, though physically descended from Isaac, is not counted as the progenitor of the nation of Israel, a fact which, is, which has its basis in God's having chosen Jacob, his brother, for this position. Why did he choose Jacob? Because Jacob had the faith to believe in God. Had a desire to know who God was and to study who God was. To learn from his father and from his father's father. 
Paul goes on to explain this in the next verse. In, in verse 7 it says, Indeed, not all the descendants are seed of Abraham. Rather, in Genesis 21, 12, he quotes, What is to be called your seed will be an Isaac. In other words, it is not the physical children who are children of God, but the children of the promise refers to who are considered seed. For this is what the promise said, At the set time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And even more to the point is the case of Rebekah. For both her children were conceived in a single act with Yitzhak, our father. And before they were born, before they had done anything at all, either good or bad, so that God's plan might remain a matter of his sovereign choice, not dependent on what they did, but on God who does the calling, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. This accords with where it is written in Malachi 1, 2, and 3, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Esau was not a spiritual man. Jacob, on the other hand, was the spiritual man in the house. The choosing of the firstborn spiritually is not always the first physically born. Thus, Jacob was the spiritual chosen one. Again, going back to David Stearns, it says God decides what his promises mean and how they are to be carried out. It is his plan. Although the phrase seed of Abraham seems self-explanatory, because we understand seed being that which is descended from us, God decided what is to be called your seed for purposes of the promise will be in Isaac, not in Ishmael, of whom the same word seed is used in the Tanakh, but not in connection with the promises. And in the case of Rebekah, it is even more to the point in demonstrating God's absolute sovereignty in determining such matters independently of anything human beings do. For both Jacob and Esau were her children, whereas the fact that Ishmael's mother was Hagar and Esau was Sarah's might lead to one to conclude that Sarah's greater worthiness had earned Isaac the promises. Nor can one look for a difference in deservedness on the father's side, for both were conceived in a single act by Isaac, the Greek indicating that both were conceived in the same act of intercourse. So Paul continues in verse 14. He says, So are we to say it is unjust for God to do this? Heaven forbid. For to Moshe he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have pity on whom I have pity. Thus it does not depend on human desire, nor efforts, but on God who has mercy. So Proverbs 16.4 says, Adonai made everything for its purpose. Everything. He even prepared the earth for mankind. He did everything on earth before he made it man in order to prepare it for man so that he could put man here to tend it. But it goes, Proverbs 16.4 goes on, it says, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Not everyone is chosen. Scripture even reveals in, in Peter that, that we are chosen since before the foundation. He has known us since before the foundation of the earth. So we've been chosen all this time. There's a there's an idea uh, that isn't, all, isn't necessarily bad, but it isn't necessarily correct. This idea of once saved, always saved. Some will go farther and say once saved, always saved, if truly saved. If he's chosen you, he knew you beforehand, and he knows the depths of your faith, just as he chose Jacob to be Israel. He knew Jacob would not let him go. He would not forsake him just as he knew David would not forsake him. He chose us for a reason, and that reason is that we're going to hold on to our faith. Going back to the Jewish New Testament commentary in David Stern, 
In quoting Exodus 33:19, Shaul brings into focus God's mercy along with his sovereignty and his justice. Though God is within his rights to hate Excuse me, to, uh, I missed I mistyped some. Though God is within his rights to hate whom he will, so that standing with God doesn't depend on human desires or efforts, God nevertheless does have mercy and does show pity. Blessed be his name. Baruch Hashem. If anybody's counting. Non-Messianic Judaism understands God's attribute of mercy as even greater than his attribute of justice. Although this seems a very beautiful idea, it can lead to the false hope that God in his mercy will somehow overlook the just punishment for sins. It's very dangerous. It is easy to see why such a hope is sought. People who do not have Yeshua to satisfy God's demand for justice by being their kapara, their atonement, for their sins, know that they need God's mercy desperately. The wish then is father to the thought that God is more merciful than judgmental. How many people do we know out there who, though they have Yeshua, talk only about his mercy and his grace. They don't talk about his judgment. Messianic Judaism does not have to elevate mercy over justice because Yeshua the Messiah combines in himself God's perfect justice with his perfect mercy and demonstrates how they dovetail and coincide. This is why Shaul can quote Exodus 33.19 in an answer to a question about God's justice, thereby placing God's mercy alongside his justice and not above it. Now, I want to go back to verse 8. It says, In other words, it is not the physical children who are children of God, but the children of the promise refers to those who are considered seed. John 1, verses 12 and 13, give you that right. It says, But to as many as did receive him, to those who put their trust in his person and power, he gave the right to become children of God. Not because of bloodline, physical impulse, or human intention, but because of God, because he chose you, just as he chose the Jewish people. Galatians 3.29 says, Also, if you belong to Messiah, if you are in Messiah, you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. So we see that there is a group who is chosen and there's a group who is not chosen. Both can come from the nation of Israel. Blessed be his name that those who believe in him who are not part of the nation of Israel get to become part of the nation of Israel through the grafting in. So I want to show you something that I saw in one of the, com one of the commentaries I was reading. God's levels of election. His first level of election is Israel. It is on the national level. He chose Israel to be a people unto himself. Why? To be a light to the nations. Are they being a light to na the nations right now? Not really. Are they drawing people into Judaism in faith in God? Not really. Hashem promises blessing for these people based on their obedience and of course punishment for their disobedience. The next is the tribal or occupational. It's within the nation of Israel. It may include whole tribes or individuals or it may, it, it may or may not include true faith. In other words, you can be descendant from Jacob and be part of the nation of Israel, the physical nation of Israel, but you can have no faith. How many Jews do we know who have no faith? Secular. Hashem elects these tribes, Judah and Levi, for example, and, and these individuals, the priests, the kings, etc., for specific roles and positions within the nation. We need them. 
The next level is, an, is the individual. The individual can obviously be part of the nation of Israel through faith. It always involves true faith, right? Chosen individuals are brought near in companionship with Hashem. They can, they're part of the nation through their faith, though they may not be descended from any of the tribes. Okay? But they are, because of their faith, part of the nation, grafted in. We also have Messiah, who shows us the perfect faith. On the Messianic level, in which the chosen Messiah, Yeshua, is the elective individual par excellence. In other words, he sets the par that we are to be shooting for. Again, in 10.4 Romans, for Messiah is the goal of the Torah unto righteousness to everyone who believes. The individual who believes in Messiah is in Messiah. When we put it all together, we see an overlap right here. You can be part of the nation, part of, part of the nation in a tribe, but obviously not have any true faith. But you could have true faith. Messiah had true faith. He includes the individual who's outside of the nation by descendancy, but he brings them in. But he's also part of the tribal, occupational part of the nation. Because he was descended through them. And there are those in, Judah, in, in, in the line of Judaism, descended from Jacob, who believe in Yeshua Messiah. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the remnant that shall be saved. This is the remnant. When scripture talks about all Israel shall be saved, all Israel are those who have true faith. It does not mean all who were born from Jacob, but those who have the true faith in Messiah get to become, on the national level, Israel. Hallelujah. That's your New Testament. Today. Hallelujah. Wow. Baruch Hashem. Yevarechecha Adonai Vishmerecha you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the name of the Lord be upon you forever. Amen. Thank you for being a part of our teaching. Be sure to visit our website at www.thefoundationoftheword.org for additional resources and to help us financially. 
it is our hope and desire that what we teach will help you in your walk with Hashem Elohim, that we bring more souls into His kingdom. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.